Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nancy Durrant. I'm Nick Clark. And I'm Nick Curtis. Coming up on today's show... We'll be reviewing Alice Birch's adaptation of Lorca's The House of Bernarda Alba, starring Harriet Walter, Isis Hainsworth and Rosalind Eliaza. Eight years of mourning. In those eight years, the wind of the street will not enter this house. I don't want my flesh becoming like all of yours. Following award-winning revivals of Cabaret and A Streetcar Named Desire, this is Rebecca Frecknell's directing debut at the National Theatre. And for our second review, it's Oliver Goldsmith's She Stoops to Conquer at the Orange Tree Theatre in Richmond. But young Mr Marlowe, whom I have pitched upon, is the son of my old friend Sir Charles Marlowe, of whom you've heard me talk so often. I am told he's a man of an excellent understanding. Is he? Very generous. <laughs> I believe I shall like him. Tom Littler directs Freddie Fox, Greta Skaki and Tanya Reynolds in a Christmas set version of the play, but is it a festive treat or a load of baubles? Plus, it's 1959 in a place called Hawkins. Our guest this week is Patrick Vale, who is starring as Dr Brenner in the new stage production of Stranger Things, The First Shadow. This amazing sort of fusion of old-fashioned stage magic coupled with really stunning craft that comes from technology that I don't know anything about. Plus designers who know how to make things beautiful. And so you just sort of marvel at this thing that's sort of taking shape before your eyes. You can catch this show at the Phoenix Theatre from December the 14th. Welcome back to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Before we kick off, if you've not yet done so, then please do hit follow on this podcast. That way you'll be alerted every week when a new episode lands. And drop us an email whenever you want over at theatrepod at standard.co.uk. We love hearing from you. And actually, I had a question for our listeners, which I'm always interested to know, which is what was the show that really got you into theatre the first time? Nick, what was it for you? Well, it's a really interesting question. The first thing I remember is actually the theatre itself. I remember being taken on a number of occasions to the Polka Theatre in Wimbledon, which is a really lovely children's theatre. It's actually had a recent refurbishment, so it's it's really brand spanking new and extra special now. There wasn't at that stage as a child a sort of singular show, but I just remember loving, absolutely loving the theatre. In terms of sort of the, the show that got me really hooked on theatre, it, it was maybe an odd one, but it, it was called Gangster Number One. It was in my teens. Oh, yeah. Um, there was an actor who lived on our street, a guy called John Cato, sadly no longer with us, but um, he was in it. And it was 
the most extraordinary show really it, it had Peter Bowles of To The Man mm. Are Born playing a sort of violent East End gangster and he was incredible yeah childhood polka theatre and then yeah getting into theatre theater a bit later on it was gangster number one what about you? well I remember Pantos I remember seeing Spike Milligan in Treasure Island at the Mermaid when the wow. Mermaid used to do that every year relatively towards the end of his life I imagine um, and my parents took me to Regent's Park Open Air Theatre many many times where apparently I would sit and explain what had just happened to my sister <laughs> <laughs> so obviously the the critic. Critic event, yeah. <laughs> but the ones that really got me into it, the first shows I went to by choice were a David Thacker season at the Young Vic which had Hamlet in it a View from the Bridge and Stags and Hens which is a pretty amazing sort of cross section mm. almost all of them starring an actor called Matthew Marsh and I think I may have said on the podcast before he played John Proctor in The Crucible right, right. Mm. and I then saw him in the recent National Theatre Revival where he's playing the judge in The Crucible oh, sort of, you know, 40 years on however long it is but that was it and the Young Vic just you know, even then was a really cool theatre and just a really exciting place to visit. So that was the first place I went by choice. So I was really lucky. My dad worked for a firm and I, I, I assume they gave some money every year, like as patrons or whatever, to the Royal Exchange. And as a result, they would get sort of X number of free tickets to every show. And nobody ever took them except for my dad. So mm. we went to see everything. So I think I'd probably seen some Shakespeare and stuff before. But I remember, I think I was about 15 or something. And it was a production of Look Back in Anger mm. with Michael Sheen playing Jimmy. And it blew my little mind. Mm. It was just incredible. And I think it was the first time I realised that, I mean realised, but realised in a really kind of conscious way that theatre wasn't effectively just Shakespeare. Mm. It changed my view of what it was and what you could see on stage. And actually, you know, for me, I know it was, you know, many, many years after it had first been produced, but it was the first time I had seen working class characters on stage mm in a way that wasn't rude mechanicals. I interviewed Michael Sheen years later and he was absolutely appalled to discover that I was 15 at the time when he was on stage. But um, no, it was brilliant. I really loved it. Anyway, we'd love to hear from you guys as well, our listeners, to tell us what your kind of seminal theatre moment was. Um, What else is going on this week? So Nick accused me of subtweeting him (laughs) this week when I... Uh, actually had, uh, you know, not guilty, Milad, because I was just really pleased that A Mirror, the show that was on earlier this year at the Almeida, had uh, received a transfer to the West End. Obviously, we felt very differently about this, Nick. We did. But, uh, I, was, I was being slightly sarcastic about, about the subtweet. And, yeah. uh, but I, and, and I'm, I'm, we did feel differently about it, but I'm delighted that it's, it's transferring. You know, it seems to have got easier for you know people mm. to, to sort of carve out niches for you know short, short run niches for work that isn't obviously commercial but mm. you know deserves a longer life so you know I, I think as, although I did have my reservations about yeah. this show it's great that it's got you know that the, the something is with serious intent behind it as this has Absolutely. is going into the West End something that you know we, we love all the big name musicals and all the massive sparkly shows but something with some real intellectual heft as well I mean you know it wears it sort of I was going to say it fairly lightly I mean it is it is a it is a chewy show but mm. it's one that I think really deserves perhaps returning to again I mean I'd, I'd happily see it again so I'm, I'm really hopeful that it finds its niche in the West yeah. End Uh, there was also quite an interesting thing this week. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber was speaking at <laughs> the Global Investment Summit at Hampton Course Palace, which I was not at, just FYI. Oh, you're not invited then? No, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. He was sort of suggesting that people should be thinking about London as a place to invest if they are wanting to make theatre, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he had a pretty interesting statistic. I mean, he referenced 
the Lion King film about, you know, the success of theatre shows versus even films, because he said that the current worldwide gross of, of that, and, you know, obviously mega hit, is 970 million but the theatre show has generated 10.2 billion mm. I mean obviously that's worldwide but in London is a major major uh, version of that he got a statistic that in London for every pound that is generated in the theatre it generates pound uh, forty in the local economy which obviously uh, suggests that investment in theatre is a no brainer certainly for all the businesses surrounding it as well yeah. and we he's, know. he's also pointing out the costs of, of what it costs to put stuff on on Broadway and the, and the greater level of risk as a result of that um, you know, he said it was almost a, a vanity project on Broadway now that the only shows that can survive are things like The Lion King or Hamilton mm. that have you know huge enough to be beyond their break-even point mm. and they can now you know turn a, a profit and he said to put a musical on Broadway now will cost roughly 20 million dollars I think we saw uh, we read that about a budget didn't we in New York of the, putting Cabaret on in New York I think oh, it's yeah. going to cost something like 14 million um, this is something that um, Patrick Vale speaks mm. about in the interview uh, on this podcast today about the relative costs of mm. he's now moved to London and he's saying how delighted he is that he, you know, he, th- he thinks that theatre going is baked into the culture here in a way mm. that is no longer affordable mm. in New York. It and, is bonkers. Um, I mean, like every time I go, and I go quite often, like once a year or something like that, and it, I'm, I'm always astonished. And my friends are like, "Oh, let's go and see a show. Mm. We'll, we'll, you know, give us the money for the ticket later." And I'm always like, "Oh, that's two hundred and fifty dollars. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for that. Like, what? Yeah, yes. You know, and here you can spend that much money, obviously, but you can also nearly always." find a ticket I mean it might not be the best seat in the house but you know there'll be something that you can just about manage it, you know if it, I mean I say just about manage you know 50 60 yeah. 80 pounds still a lot of money yeah. but it's not like it's not I don't know, like a, a meal for six. <laughs> Huge amount of money. Anyway, yeah. it's quite I mean, interesting. And invest you, all your money in London, please. Yes, yes please. Exactly. <laughs> and in theatre. And in theatre, it sounds like an absolute, you know, yeah. sure thing. It's a slam dunk. It's a win-win <laughs> situation. Yes. <laughs> Nobody ever lost any money investing in theatre. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> never, never, not a penny. Um, anyway, great. Well, do get in touch with us for any of the points we talk about in the podcast, uh, any of your memories, and yeah, just any questions you have for us, really. Theater pod at standard.co.uk Lovely. Right, so let's get stuck into our first review. This is The House of Bernarda Alba. A daughter who disobeys is no longer a daughter. She becomes your enemy. I remember the Federico Garcia Lorca play that this is adapted from as being pretty bloody relentless. Is it the same? Is it like that at the National? Can I just say, first up, well done, Nancy, on uh, not saying House of Banana Rama, which has been stuck in my head all week, <laughs> or even House of Bernardo Silva, so Manchester City fans might uh, pick up on that one. Um, but yeah, so this is the Lorca classic. I didn't realise it was first staged 10 years after, almost 10 years after his death, after he, oh. he, he was murdered by a Spanish nationalist. Yes. Um, but it's now been reworked by Alice Birch. Listeners may know her from, she, she's a very acclaimed playwright, but also worked on Succession and um, the Dead Ringers recent adaptation on, on Prime Video. But yes, and it Basically, we are introduced to a household in mourning. The um, patriarch has just died, and there's five daughters, two female servants, and it is ruled over with an iron fist by Bernarda Alba, here played by Harriet Walter. The five daughters range in age from 39 down to 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, the eldest, Angustias, mm-hmm. played by Rosalind Eliazar, is the eldest and the daughter of Bernarda's first husband, and we understand was abused by the second husband. Which is part of 
Alice Birch's yes. take on this. I yes, think. it's a long time since I've seen this play. I think the last time I saw it, Penelope Wilson did it right. again at the National, and that must have been at least sort of 15 to 20 years mm. ago now. So I can't remember how present that is yeah, in, yeah. in Lorca's original. I think it may be hinted at. It's very definitely made explicit here by Alice yeah, yeah, Birch. Yeah. So there's a there's a le- another level of tension there, another mm. another level of, of alienation between the eldest daughter and the four younger ones, which is complicated by the fact that she has then left the bulk of the stepfather's estate which makes her attractive as a marriage prospect for the youngest, handsomest man in this fairly pokey, grim village, yeah. whose affections to the younger daughters covered, including yeah. Adela, the youngest and sultriest of all of them. Yeah. So there's there's a lot going on here, and it yeah. doesn't end happily. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> no, say. no spoilers it's, there. It's fairly clear from the start. I mean, this is a Rebecca Frecknell joint. We've talked about yeah. loving her shows, Cabaret, Streetcar, Summer and Smoke. These are all massive, yeah. massive, and, and, and her fingerprints are all over this as well. I mean, some of them, I might say, it's sort of a bit of a tick in this production. Um, yeah. It opens with a bit of performative dance from the one male presence in the show who never says anything. The masculine presence, it sort of hangs heavy over this house, whether the dead father or the young lover, yeah. who then, it, it's his presence that tears the whole house apart ultimately. Yeah. But um, it starts with him dancing. And to be honest, while it can work in some places, I thought it was a bit overused I, yes I agree with you about particularly about his dance I, I like mm. the sort of bit of choral movement that ends the longer first act leading before the very short second act which is a fairly horrific moment which I won't Absolutely. you know uh, spoil here, was, I read one reviewer described it as a sort of Goya-esque scene and yeah. it really is yeah. and and it's and that is brilliantly done you that's know. well put I wish I'd come up with that one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the flip side of the fact that she's having an extraordinarily successful run as all the productions you mentioned plus her Romeo and Juliet, which starred Isis Hainsworth, who now stars as Adela in this, as the youngest daughter. Mm. Um, You run the risk of your signature moves looking like gimmicks, or you know, or looking like you've got only a certain number of shots in your Mm. locker. That said, I mean, I think the ideas did work better for me here than Mm. they have done, certainly, say, in in Romeo and Juliet. I mean, what the really sort of bravura move was at the beginning of of sort of concertinaing a lot of the the dialogue over it. Because of the, the way the house is laid out, you can have different characters talking to each other in different bits and just flicking between the conversations. The problem for me was uh, I came in and, and I, I struggled with it initially. Yeah. I was a bit tired and just <laughs> really trying to grasp everything that was going on. I didn't always find it was the most clear, but once you get into the rhythm and the techniques and all of that, I think it was fine. But it just it took a little while to get it's, going for it's me. It's demanding in, yeah, very, it really in, in very many ways, this show. But I think one of the things that, you know, it's, it's sort of meant to be demanding. You, you yeah. don't want to come out of House Banana Darba thinking, well, I had a perfectly pleasant evening. <laughs> no, really. yeah, absolutely um, don't. And it is, it's primarily about patriarchy, particularly Spanish patriarchy, yeah. and therefore backed up by tradition and religion mm. in a very hypocritical way, which lets men get away with stuff, but keeps women on an incredibly tight leash. Mm. It's felt to me very timely at a time when you feel feminism or women's rights is being rolled back across all sorts fronts around mm. the world. But it's also about wider forms of oppression. I mean, the yeah. mere fact that Lorca was assassinated by what would eventually become the sort of Francoist forces yeah, yeah, um, yeah. means that it stands as a, a sort of metaphor for all forms of, of oppression. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. It's perhaps unfortunate that I haven't seen it yet, and mm. you do have, but um, yeah. you know, as a... As the, <laughs> you shut up as indoors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, it's interesting that Rebecca Frecknell chose to do a Lorca play because having done, you know, being very, very well known for two Tennessee Williams plays you know there's a kinship there in a sense in that they are gay men acutely aware of the plight of women in their particular you know milieu and time but I feel like Lorca is a little bit more 
in touch with them as humans in a way that, that yes. Tennessee Williams is a bit too sort of self-obsessed to be. He sort of straps them into the front of a steamroller and then just lets it roll over. Yeah, the exactly. Of the and they do have, a, I mean, you know, <laughs> they do have a terrible time in yeah. Lorca and they treat oh, each other appallingly. I mean, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is great. Everything goes um, wrong. But, you know, it's obvious that Rebecca Fracknell has a kind of you know, she's drawn to that as well, I think, in those playwrights. Yeah, we I should probably talk about the performances. Obviously, Harriet Walter is kind of the sun that this whole production, uh, you know, revolves around. It sounds a bit more very, like a black hole. It is very it yeah. much a sort of ensemble. I, I almost said at one point it's like watching the Navy on manoeuvres and she's a sort of, you know, aircraft carrier just scything through the middle of I it. I loved your description. Yeah. She's this energy that scythes through the entire, yeah. you know, house, really. And you, you're right, it's much more of a black hole than the sun. That is a much better <laughs> description but um, that's not to say the other performances are diminished anyway it's an extraordinary ensemble yeah. cast I should say we've, we've mentioned um, Rosalind Eliezer and Isis Hainsworth but also the other daughters Lizzie Annis um, she's fantastic Lizzie Annis was she, in, was she in that Tennessee she was Williams she Glass Menagerie yes yeah she was fantastic yeah. she was really good and I think she was nominated for our Emerging Talent Award yeah yeah she was brilliant that. she's really really good mm. in this and then there's Pearl Chander and also Elliot Salt who I also I really like oh I like Pearl Chander a lot yeah mm. so it's, it's an extraordinary cast. and the lovely thing is as well that because of the sort of fragmentation of the house mm. around the rooms although the, the, the main action is very tightly focused in the living room you know, yes. that is the sort of heart of the house you know the dark heart to the house um, but you can look at what people are doing in the other rooms and they are absolutely you know acting full on even if they're not saying anything I've spent totally a lot of time agree. just watching Bryony Hannah as the, the sort oh, of skivvy yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. who just gives <laughs> the most beautiful understated performance mm. just going about household tasks you're, around you're the You're absolutely kitchen. right. It's, as a slight digression here, it made me think of the reason to watch football live rather than on TV is so you can actually look at bits away from the main action. The reason to go to theatre, part of the reason to go to theatre and not just watch a, a TV adaptation is you're not being shown where the director's pointing you. Really, yes. you are a bit. Yeah. But you can, you know, willfully go and look. You know, there are moments where you can just look at Harriet Walter staring at a crucifix in her bedroom while yep. all the action is going on downstairs, but she's still magnetic so you exactly can go around that. this doll's house and it's amazing I think we should mention another of the actors here Tisita Jayasundara who played the housekeeper Poncia yeah. who's been in the house for 40 years but is still treated basically as a stranger by Bernardo Alba she will not embrace her in the household but she's the only one who can speak truth to power yeah. and she's brilliant although <laughs> some of her truth telling is, is rather extraordinary including when the youngest daughter is saying oh but this sexy man wants to marry my older sister she says well don't worry just hold on let them get married because she's going to definitely die in childbirth and then he'll definitely come back and want to marry the youngest sister yeah, they so always you are do quitting. Yeah. <laughs> you are just quitting, bide man. your time yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean obviously absolutely terrible advice but the way it's played is, is quite good you know these sort of bleak four laughs I mean mm. in, in a way yeah uh, I mean and then it just once the, the these epic sort of um, themes start rolling down the hill and as you say a very short second half yeah. boy it goes quickly and actually you probably could have even used a bit more time around that I thought possibly yes yes it, it sort of snowballs fairly quickly yeah I mean I think this is a I think this is a really strong you know stark piece of work mm. I, I, I was really impressed by it and I really I think it's great I struggled with some of it but I wouldn't say that that should put anyone off going because it's one of these shows that I think you should struggle with yeah. mm. you you know anything that 
Rebecca Frecknell puts on is worth seeing, it seems to me, mm. and this is absolutely worth seeing. I but want to see it, as but I'm said, absolutely dreading it. Yeah. It's, that's mm. kind of a... <laughs> that, that's kind of a, yeah, good... Well, you good can go see something else the night after the sort of treat. Yeah, you know, true. <laughs> go see Elf or something. <laughs> 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 that's on until January the 6th at the National Theatre in the Littleton, should you wish to depress and enrage yourself. <laughs> you should, you should. Let's go to a quick break. Coming up in part two, I'll be over in Bloomsbury. Uh, I think you mean Hawkins? Quite right. I'll be over in Hawkins or The Upside Down with Patrick Vale, who is starring in Stranger Things, The First Shadow, as the young Dr. Brenner. See you in just a minute. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Matthew Modine, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Joining us on the podcast this week is Patrick Vale, uh, winner of last year's Best Musical Performance Award in the Evening Standard Theatre Awards for Oklahoma, which he was in for a staggering 15 years, am I right? <laughs> Something about like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> but now, breaking off and into new territory in uh, Stranger Things on stage, mm. uh, the first shadow. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me. It's really it's good to be here. Very nice to see you again. We spoke last year around the awards, but uh, this is a whole new ball game here. You've moved mm. to London in the interim. Yes. And you're now em- well embraced on this on this intriguing new project. Yes, I've sort of nestled in and sort of here I am. Tell yeah. us a little bit about Stranger Things, The First Shadow. Well, in terms of what I'm allowed to talk about, because mm. of course, you know, we've signed these sort of ironclad things about what we can and cannot say. Stranger Things, The First Shadow, is set in Hawkins, Indiana in 1959. And there you will find familiar faces from the television series of Joyce Maldonado, Bob Newby, and Jim Hopper, all in high school. And to Hawkins arrives a new boy, a new kid in school, Henry Creel, who is 14 and moving from Nevada with his family, where something bad has happened. And they are moving to Hawkins for a fresh start. And as one might imagine, that fresh start doesn't go particularly to plan. Right. Well, tell us your your part in this. You are the young Dr. Brenner. Yes, I play young Dr. Brenner, um, brilliantly um, played by Matthew Modine on the series, of whom I'm a huge fan. Alumnus of this podcast, we interviewed him for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, of course, yes, of course, yeah. But yes, so go on, tell us about this. Yes, so I play Dr. Brenner, who arrives in the story at a point where there sort of seems need of a doctor to arrive. And 
the journey of Henry Creel and Dr. Brenner um, is sort of an exploration into the origins of this series, right. of what the television series is. And so there is this sort of wonderful, you know, it's like having this fantastic card up your sleeve, knowing that not only am I sort of in this wonderful, almost like a Cronenberg film of a play, you yeah. know, this sort of strange doctor and patient relationship, but I also sort of am in this wonderful origin story. So it's mm. being in a proper play, but also this sort of massive treat for fans of the series. I think the theatre world was sort of fairly boggled when this was announced because you wouldn't think Stranger Things was a natural oh, stage adaptation. Me too. I was boggled. I was sort of like, what? And then as I sort of, you know, became aware that there was interest in my possibly meeting people involved with the project, uh, I glanced at the creative team, <laughs> yes. uh, which is sort of this like murderer's row of like geniuses. Yeah. And began to sort of realize what was, you know, going on there was something far more than a cash-in. It was this, like, a proper play that was going to serve as sort of an entity on its own. And that Stephen Daldry and Justin Martin and Kate Tree Fry, along with the Duffers, were going to create something that no one's ever experience before yeah. and it's really it's it is what's happening which is what i'm thrilled to say yeah as you say that's an incredible meeting of minds that's the sort of duffer brothers who created the original series yeah. stephen daldry who you know has been behind many many mm. astonishing theater productions over the years but also mm. the olympics all the olympic and paralympic ceremonies of 2012 so of course. He's i didn't a man, even know about i forgot about yeah. that yes <laughs> he's a man oh, not unused to spectacle uh, right. are we going to be seeing some some sort of spectacle and some effects in this because it's an effects heavy tv series I stranger mean, things listen there's stuff that like I'm in it, and I don't really believe it as it happens. It, it really is quite stunning, and I'm not just saying that in a sort of promoting way. There's stuff that makes me just sort of... I make sort of strange like noises if I'm watching a tech session, just going, what? You know, and... Because you can't believe it, and it's this amazing sort of fusion of old-fashioned stage magic, which is obviously the best kind of thing ever, coupled with really stunning craft that comes from technology that I don't know anything about. Yeah. Plus designers who know how to make things beautiful. Mm. And so you just sort of marvel at this thing that's sort of taking shape before your eyes and then coupling it with like good story and the performances that are happening. It's really like really quite humbling to be a part of it. Right. Are you missing Oklahoma? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I mean, you know, there are my heart is sort of always there. I mean, it's, that was such a formative thing for me, that show. You know, I sort of grew up with it and it with me. Mm. But I'm very happy to, you know, it was this amazing sort of actor's dream where, you know, Oklahoma ended its West End run on September 2nd and I began rehearsals for Stranger Things on September 4th. I had, you know, a day. A day of unemployment, <laughs> thinking I'm never going to work did, again. Yeah, yeah. I did my laundry. Right. And then I went to work. And um, it was just incredible. And like, it's sort of, you know, you sort of, have, sort of prepare for the burial of a play for a long time before, you, when you know the closing date is coming, you have this sort of wonderful process of sort of saying goodbye to it. And mm. with Oklahoma, 
I'd had I'd sort of said goodbye so many times, honestly, because I never really sure. thought it would keep going. Yeah. It was this amazing, like, you know, it was like a rash that kept coming back, <laughs> a wonderful rash. Yes. But like, you know, yeah, it just sort of remains in me at all. I, I sort of don't know if I can ever miss it because I, it's not ever gone. It's like, it's, it's the greatest sure. thing. At what stage did you decide or know that you were going to uproot to London? Because you're, you're a Manhattanite originally. I am. I'm yeah. born and bred Manhattanite. And um, so that, you know, is a hard thing to shake. Yeah. And I probably won't ever in some way. No, I so basically it was, I was here doing the Young Vic production of Oklahoma. And I was so, you know, thrilled to just be an American working in London. It was yeah. so cool to me. You know, I mean, I grew up coming to London and seeing theater and thinking, my God, you know, but I'm, an, I'm a lowly American. I could never be a part <laughs> of it, you know. And then, then, like, to get to be here and work in this way with these people, I was so, that was so satisfying and something I was so thrilled by at the outset. But what I wasn't really prepared for, not that I wasn't expecting it in any way or, like, but was how much I just liked living in London. Mm. I mean, and granted, it was, you know, living in Southwark and, like, spring and beautiful and, yeah. like, a, the most appallingly stunning weather you've ever seen. But also just the rhythm of the city and something sort of struck a chord in me and I felt really, really instantly at home in a way that was really nice. And then between the Young Vic and the West End, I realized I really missed being here and then I was here for the West End and I just decided to sort of take the leap and... Do the paperwork and get the thing done. Terrific. What does London do better than New York, and what do you miss about? Well, I don't want to start any sort of war. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things that I really have loved about working here is that London audiences sort of... The way... The the habit of going to the theatre is very deep in the centre of the middle of the marrow of the people of this city. You know, like, you can feel people far more used to experimentation because they see more theater. Mm. And, and and that's a cost thing. I mean, obviously costs are astronomical here as well as not quite as bad as New York, but yeah. like, but you know, they're just the habit is, the habit is in the people. And like, so there's that, I would say that audiences here are really thoughtful and daring. They're as daring as the artists in many mm. ways. And, you know, you need a daring audience if you are going to have daring artists. Because, yeah. And so I feel like there's a sense of collaboration here that is really thrilling to be a part of. Uh, the community is very loving and very just sort, of, sort of wonderful gallery of nut jobs. I mean, it's great. <laughs> I really am just a fantastic... I don't know if it's better, but it is different. Yeah. Yes. Is your sort of attention focused on anywhere beyond Stranger Things, or is this? Are you going for other sort of film, TV Ooh. jobs while this is going on? Or oh, I know God. it's not up on its feet yet. I mean, so. I can barely, you know, go to the shops, let yeah. alone. It's, it's the only thing I can do right now. No, this show really, you know, is a. It's a big whole commitment. It's 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 remarkable. I mean, I really I. My attention is joyfully very full with just Stranger Things, and it's. It's it's a far more complex thing than I think people coming in might anticipate. There's mm-hmm. a real sort of thorniness to the story, and like there's a lot of gristle around it, and like things that are going to make people very uncomfortable, but also things that are going to make people really excited and scared and laugh and all that stuff. And, yeah. You know, it occupies everything, which is fun. You know, you have dreams about it when you work on something that starts to get into you. It's right. really 
that's that's exciting. Yeah. We were talking just before we uh, picked up the microphones about mm. the Standard Theatre Awards and mm. where you reunited with some Oklahoma castmates yeah. and some other people from the sort of London run. Did you get a chance to chat to Nicole Scherzinger and compare notes on winning Best Musical Performance? Ah. You no, I did not. I, I, did, I congratulated her because it was this, you know she has this sort of amazing glow about her, doesn't she? Where she you does. sort of feel like you're like walk even you're just sort of ascending some sort of pedestal to greet her. And I said, oh, congratulations, you look so wonderful. And she was, you know, she said, thank you, and walked away. And I felt like I'd been sort of, you know, touched. touched. But, yeah, it was <laughs> really greatness. extraordinary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's still big, it's just you got small, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just sort of, you know, yeah, touched the hem of her garment. What's your first memory of theatre? My first memory of the theatre is actually not a play, it's a ballet. Uh, my parents, every year took me and my sister to see The Nutcracker at New York City Ballet at Lincoln Center, George Balanchine's The Nutcracker. And I was, I, th- I believe I was three, and my parents were very nervous that I would, you know, make a fuss the way a three-year-old might. And apparently I did not and was transfixed and came home and was very, you know, apparently very quiet and, you know, and and then that was really became this sort of obsession the ballet and then I was a dancer before I was an actor mm. um, so the Nutcracker was very much my way in and yeah I and I still go all the, whenever I'm in New York I will be there so fantastic yeah. Patrick Vale thank you very much for oh, joining us yes thank you for having me this is wonderful Stranger Things, The First Shadow, opens at the Phoenix Theatre on December 14th and it's booking until August the 25th. Right, let's go to a quick break. Coming up in part three, we'll review She Stoops to Conquer at the Orange Tree. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Millie Alcock, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. What's a thousand to one? I shan't like him. Mm. Our meeting will be so formal and so like a thing of business that I shall find no room for friendship or esteem. Depend upon it, child. I'll never control your choice. Welcome back to the pod. Right up next, She Stoops to Conquer at the Orange Tree. Nancy and Nick, is this a lovely winter warmer? Mm. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, um, yeah, she woke me up again there. Uh, <laughs> this is um, a bit of a snooze, isn't it? It's really? fine if you like that sort of thing. It's directed by Tom Littler. It's his first big Christmas show as artistic director of The Orange Tree. He's rolls out some pretty big guns, or at least, you know, some very, very good, uh, solid actors. So Greta Skaki, Freddie Fox, Tanya Reynolds, David Horovitz, you know, who I'll always take, take pleasure in watching. And as he points out in the programme, we all think we've seen She Stoops to Conquer uh, 
uh, we all think of it as a staple of the stage and we all feel like we've seen a million productions of it but actually it's incredibly rarely done I actually can't remember whether I've seen it before I feel I must have done at some point but um, maybe there is now a re- reason for that that it yeah. is this sort of fairly cosy marital 18th century farce which relies on a vast amount of suspension of disbelief. Yeah, I mean, it's a comedy of manners, which hinges entirely on the fact that different standards and behaviour are expected with different classes of people, particularly women. So Freddie Fox's character, Charles Marlowe, is a a kind of lecherous seducer with women of lower class. And Mm. he's a sort of bumbling, nervous, stuttering idiot with women of his own class. And I was reading up, you know, because he's posh, and I was reading up on it, and it was described as one of the few plays from the 18th century to have retained its appeal and is still regularly performed. And I'm kind of wondering why. (laughs) Apparently not that regularly, as you say, but it sort of feels like it ought to be a satire, but it isn't. No, I I suppose the reason it may may retain some sort of uh, edge over its contemporaries is the fact, the clues in the title, She Stoops to Conquer, that basically the smartest person on the stage is Kate Hardcastle, played here by sex educationist Tanya Reynolds, who basically runs rings around Marlowe and around her father and all the basically all, all the men on the stage are just complete idiots and uh, <laughs> and she's the clever dick and she comes out of it best at the Yeah, end. it's true and to be honest, Tanya Reynolds is by far the best thing in it. As you've said, she was in sex education but I first saw her on stage in a mirror yeah. at the Almeida and I'm hoping that she'll be going she with is. that to the oh great to the, the cast, to the yes. to the new version to the one in the West End but um, she has this sort of ability to be extremely arch but also naturalistic at the same time mm. and by the end of it I have to admit I was kind of breathing a sigh of relief every time she returned to the stage because she true. sort of freshened it up every time yeah I mean I thought Freddie Fox is sort of the second best thing as well yes. you know he's kind of good as like young self-important easy living young men they are the best things in it there's a subsidiary couple and you know a subsidiary romance which involves his friend and her cousin mm. and various duels and people bang on about it at a fairly tedious length we should say it's been updated to the 30s and so given a sort of Woodhousean topspin to it but I think partly the result of that and also partly because I think the director and the actors all feel that the material needs it. There's a terrible air of forced jollity to this and yeah. a terrible air of, of rather artificial business of people having to pretend not to notice things that are right in front of their face, of you know being willfully blind or ignorant to, to what is going on around them, which I just found got really rather wearing after a while. Yeah, it's true. And I think the effect of updating it to the early 30s, so bringing it kind of closer to our age, but not that close, actually makes its outdatedness much more starkly evident than it would have been if it was all periwigs and panniers. Yes. And I I feel like it it, essentially it doesn't really work in that respect. It's been set at Christmas as well, which I don't think the original is. And I mean, and actually what that does is it creates a beautiful set. You know, it's the whole of the tiny Orange Tree Theatre, which is sort of wood panelled and lovely, is kind of decked out with lashings of holly. And it it looks very pretty and very festive. It does. And I mean, it it means that the cast look great as well. You know, Daniel Reynolds gets to wear some amazing frocks. Freddie Fox looks like he was born in a dinner jacket. He really does, yeah. Uh, But he also gets to wear uh, various sort of driving coats and gloves and caps and things and so the the costumes are lovely as you say the set is lovely they've got some uh, locals I think members probably of the of the local drama group who right. come in and fill out an innkeeping scene at which Guy Hughes playing Tony Lumpkin sings a couple of ukulele yeah. based songs which are you know quite fun but you know again you sort of sit there going, oh, it's a little bit hard work it's isn't it? really I mean there are way too many people with nothing to do but be hearty in those scenes <laughs> <laughs> and I really think that he's doing his best as Tony Lumpkin but it is a bit of a thankless part yeah also as you mentioned um 
Sabrina Bartlett and Robert Mountford as Constance and Hastings, who are the other couple, could actually be entirely removed from the narrative with almost without actually a great deal of disruption, to be perfectly mm. honest. and it, Or at least it feels like that. And I don't think that's down to the acting. I think it's just the fact that the, the characters are just wildly inconsequential. There's a sort of comedy, there's a deeply unfunny comedy servant uh, played yeah, by Richard Derrington. Yeah, that's really uncomfortable, actually. It's really uncomfortable. He's having to sort of gurn his way through it in order mm. to try and mine any sort of humour from it and with not very much success, I have to no, say. No, exactly. I mean, it is just... I mean, the... the the problem with it is it's just basically stupid, self-important men behaving appallingly. Yeah, no, that, you know? that, is, that is absolutely It's really true. hard yeah. to... Like, Freddie Fox does a great job of it, but he's re- that character is really hard to root for. Yeah. And you just, you know, she's brilliant, her character's great, it's all really fun, but it just... It, well, fun, is it? Um, I just sort of didn't care, and it really does go on. It does it's two hours on. and 40 minutes of this yeah. stuff, yeah. which is way too long for most things, and it could definitely stand a sympathetic edit, I think. Oh, God, and there's this interminable scene in a garden towards the end yeah. that just feels desperate, or, well, or at least I felt desperate, <laughs> sort of by about halfway through, when I just think, you know, this kind of nonsense, and it is silly yeah. nonsense, that is all it is, it needs to fly by. It does. That's, uh, the garden scene is one of those places where the intimacy of a theatre like the Orange Tree Theatre doesn't really work because no. you've got three people, you know, two two feet away from each other pretending not to see one another. <laughs> I know, it's, it's just so ridiculous. Stupid. I suppose there's a, I mean, there's a question here about the sort of curatorial role of theatres. If this play has not been revived, is it interesting that Tom Litter has, re- has revived it? You know, there's so many things that just do not get staged now that regularly were 10, 20 years ago, Ben Johnson, Thomas Middleton, you know, those sort of things. Um, on paper, this sounded like a very good idea for his local audience. Probably, well, that's it. I, I was seated next to this older actor. I don't know his name. He was doing a very hammy performance of being appalled to see lots of people he hadn't seen in 30 years um, at the at the press night. But anyway, he told me that a friend of his had described it as very Richmond, the play, yeah. like the choice of play. I don't really feel entirely qualified to pick apart what that means. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, listeners can take it as they like. But it is a kind of it, it, it's obviously going to do well with its local audience but I, I just I don't really understand like I said it's like you feel like it ought to be a satire but it isn't and therefore if you're going to do it now you should in a way be sort of thinking about it putting it into a new context and going how am I going to make this into a satire or how am I going to make this make some kind of you know the point of doing this, and if you don't do that, then I don't really understand why you would bother. So instead, they've sort of gone for the the light, festive Christmas show. Yeah, and yeah. not too challenging. But it's sort but of it's done in bad faith. The whole thing. Yeah. You, know, you just see, you just watch everything and think, no, you, none of you believe what you're doing. Mm. You know, and, mm. and audiences can see that. I think. Yeah, so. I don't know. It's sort of everyone's doing fine but it's oh yeah I, I, shame and Woodhousey and She Stoops to Conquer was right in my wheelhouse <laughs> I know it ought to be it absolutely it. go and see the house banana again uh, <laughs> 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 crack that whip yeah. and make you have a terrible time <laughs> yeah I mean I really don't actually have that much more to say about this show I have to say it just I just think it's 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 alright I didn't want to be there before the end Hmm. So, well, should you still <laughs> want to go and see it after uh, that conversation? It is running at the Orange Tree until January the thirteenth. That's it for this week's episode of the Standard Theatre Podcast. 
please do hit follow, leave a comment, tell your friends. Feel free to drop us a line at theatrepod at standard.co.uk. We read all your emails and we love hearing from you. And if you're new to the podcast, there's a whole list of shows below to catch up on with many exciting interviews from Susan Wacoma and Eddie Izzard to Ian McKellen, Millie Alcock and many, many more. Thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott. We'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you.